Hey, are you into werewolves, mad scientists, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. What are you talking about? I can't possibly be D.B. Cooper. I was two and a half when it happened. <laughs> it's an old joke. I get it. Ass. The following podcast contains... What the f*** is this shit? Who the f*** are you, lady? Why the f*** did you hug my hand? Quite a little mouth on him, isn't there? Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you looked for the guy for nearly 50 years and you didn't find shit, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host Dave Bledsoe and this is episode number 303, Fly the Friendly Skyjackers Part 2, the Ballad of D.B. Cooper edition of the show, where we grab a parachute and jump out into the story of the most famous skyjacker of them all. Stay tuned. The What the Hell We Thinking podcast is brought to you by the Parachute Palace. When it absolutely, positively has to open, choose Parachute Palace. Are you a busy skyjacker on the go? Someone looking to make a quick exit in dangerous conditions over uncertain terrain, maybe in bad weather? Then you want the reliability of a Palace Parachute Palace parachute. Our chutes are packed by professional former military paratrooper riggers and triple check for fit and function. A Parachute Palace is guaranteed to open when you pull the cord or your money back. No more worries about who packed your chute having an off day or whether the FBI deliberately monkeyed with the gear. Our chutes are on your back and you are out the back of the plane, safely floating to freedom every time. The Parachute Palace, because your life depends on it. This series presents information based in part on theory and conjecture. The producer's purpose is to suggest some possible explanations, but not necessarily the only ones, to the mysteries we will examine. Growing up in an uncertain world, I think most of us look for someone trustworthy, reliable, yes, even safe. And for a kid in the late 1970s and early 1980s, there was only one man that we knew would never lie to us or just tell us what we wanted to hear. I don't know, Mr. Rogers... What? No! Oh, hell no! Sorry! I never trusted anyone that nice. They gotta be hiding something. No. I'm talking about the most trustworthy man on the planet. Hello, I'm Leonard Nimoy. You see, not only was Leonard the calm and rational voice of science on Star Trek, but he was also the turtlenecked arbiter of truth and fiction on the greatest scientific investigation show of all time, In Search Of... Now, I've talked before about how In Search Of shaped my young mind and how it taught me to skeptically inquire to the mysteries of the universe. Are you sure about that? Absolutely. And when Leonard talked about Bigfoot or ancient aliens or the mystical power of the pyramids, he always had this tone of voice that said, this is total bullshit, but you know what? They're paying me to say it. And that, pod friends, has shaped my entire view of the world and led me to this podcast, which I know is totally bullshit, but they're paying me to say it. Of course, not every in search of was in search of Atlantis or psychic detectives, 
There was plenty of history in true crime, and Leonard guided us to whatever conclusions seemed to be fit for the evidence. And this is where I first learned about one D.B. Cooper. Who the hell is that? I don't know. No one knows. That's what makes the story of D.B. Cooper so damn compelling. It's the perfect mystery. It happened recently enough in history that we have reliable sources for events, but after decades of investigation, the answers are still just blank boxes on an FBI case report. The case has fascinated ever since I saw the D.B. Cooper episode of In Search of way back in the 80s. And this week, we are going to Leonard Nimoy our way into the facts of the case and engage in some rapid speculation and out-and-out bullshit because, as my mom would tell me after I said something like, I'm Leonard Nimoy. Honey... You are many things, but you are no Leonard Nimoy. Our story begins November 24th, 1971, Thanksgiving Day. Even then, a busy travel day as Americans shuffled across the nation to gorge on turkey and bicker incessantly with their relatives about our involvement in Vietnam. Ah, go on, will you, meathead? Northwest Orient Airline Flight number 305 boarded in Portland bound for Seattle. The flight was only 36 people and six crew, and everyone was expected a short hop and a good night's sleep, or in the case of the pilots, getting shit-faced and sexually harassing the stewardesses. Some play times, huh? As the plane filled with its small passenger count, a middle-aged nondescript man wearing sunglasses and a plain brown business suit boarded with his $20 one-way ticket. He sat towards the back of the plane with his briefcase on his lap, and as the plane taxied to takeoff, he passed a note to stewardess Florence Schaffner, which presumably she imagined was just an informational note on his abilities. Oh, stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. Turns out it was not. He leaned toward her in the jump seat as she was sitting herself down for takeoff and told her it was a note in fact, informing her... He's carrying a bomb. A bomb? No, not a bomb. A bomb. And she needed to come and sit her ass down next to him and take a good look at the big sticks he had in his briefcase. From a 2007 New York Magazine article, quote, Florence Schaffner was a 23, cute, perky, the sexy stewardess. Working on planes, she'd been approached by so many men that she'd taken to wearing a wig on board to disguise herself. She dropped the man's note in a purse, thinking just another guy hitting on me. But the man was insistent. Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. She looked in the man's eyes. She saw that he was serious. She read the note. It was printed in felt pen, all capital letters elegantly formed. I have a bomb in my briefcase and I want you to sit beside me, it read. She did as requested, then asked to see the bomb. She saw a tangle of wires, batteries, and six red sticks. Then he dictated some instructions. I want $200,000 by 5 p.m. In cash. Put in a knapsack. I want two back parachutes and two front parachutes. When we land, I want a fuel truck ready to refuel. No funny stuff or I'll do the job. He let her get up and take the note to the captain. And when she got back, the man was wearing dark sunglasses, unquote. Schlafner flagged down another flight attendant who passed the message to the cockpit that the plane was, in fact, being hijacked. Oh, it must be Thursday. Which it was, being Thanksgiving and all. As we talked about last week, this wasn't unusual, and the crew and the airlines and the police had a protocol for how to address this week's hijacking of a plane. Across the network, people involved the usual people, and they were notified, and the usual things were done. It was just another day during the golden age of skyjacking. The name on the ticket of our particular skyjacker was simply Dan Cooper. His name is... Uh... Dan Cooper. No one's sure where the DB came from. It began on the news reports of the time, and by the time the investigation was going on, even the FBI referred to him as DB Cooper. I have to be honest, Dan Cooper was boring. 
which is exactly what you want with an alias, I guess, but D.B. Cooper just sounds more mysterious. It's like that friend who only goes by initials and never tells you what they stand for, probably because it's something really embarrassing. I mean, would you really rather hang out with someone named A.J. or Anastasian Johannes? I'm going to stick with A.J., but if you're on a plane with a guy that has a bomb, you call him whatever the hell he wants to be called, be it D.B., Dan, or Mr. Cooper if you're nasty. At around 5.30, the flight landed in Seattle. The demands were met. Cooper wanted the money. He got the money, around $1.3 million in today's money. He got his four parachutes. In exchange, the feds got all the passengers and the flight attendants except one, and he kept one flight attendant and the pilot, and they would take the plane on to Mexico City. We're not going to Cuba. Nope. Viva la difference. After the loot was handed over and the passengers off, Cooper began to lay out the details for his plan to the air crew. Quoting now from Wikipedia, quote, a southeast course towards Mexico City at the minimum airspeed possible without stalling the aircraft, approximately 100 knots or about 150 miles an hour, at maximum 10,000 feet altitude. He further specified the landing gear remained deployed in the takeoff landing position. The wing flaps be lowered to 15 degrees and the cabin remained unpressurized. Co-pilot William J. Ratzak informed Cooper that the aircraft's range was limited to approximately 1,000 miles under the specified flight configuration, which meant a second refueling would be necessary before entering Mexico. Cooper and his crew discussed options and agreed on Reno, Nevada as the refueling stop. With the plane's rear exit door open and its staircase extended, Cooper directed the pilot to take off. Northwest Home Office objected on the grounds that it was unsafe to take off with the aft staircase deployed. Cooper counted that it was indeed safe, but he wasn't going to argue the point. He would lower it once they were airborne. Okay, very specific. Taking off at 7.40 p.m., the flight headed toward Reno into the rain and darkness. And at around 8 p.m., Cooper ordered everyone onto the flight deck, and the door closed. Shortly after that, a warning light went on in the cockpit that the rear door of the plane was open and the stairs in the rear were being deployed. At about 8.13 p.m., the plane experienced a sudden jolt significant enough to force the pilots to level the plane out, and nothing more was heard from Dan Cooper by the crew or anyone else. The plane landed in Reno with the rear stairs down. The plane was searched by police, and the skyjacker, his bomb, the money, and the two par- and two of the parachutes were gone. Bro, that is bad ass. It took some time, but the probable location of the Cooper's nighttime skydive was worked out. The largest manhunt in U.S. history until that time began. The area near Mount St. Helens in Washington was heavily wooded and mountainous, and numerous rivers and large lakes dominated the landscape, and it was miles from any major population area, and that is where they thought Cooper dove out over. It was a terrible place to dive into in the rain, in the dark, and would pose a challenge to a highly skilled military paratrooper even today. And Cooper dove without the aid of night vision goggles or any other kind of technical assistance that makes such a feat even remotely survivable today. After months of searching by hundreds of people on the ground, multiple aerial searches and a massive canvas of farms and small towns in the area, no signs of Cooper, his parachute, his bomb, or his money was ever discovered. Dude, he's dead. And that's what people widely assumed. It certainly made sense. But this did not stop the legend of D.B. Cooper from growing. The lack of the body or any sign of it all rapidly turned Cooper into kind of a folk hero in the Pacific Northwest and eventually the nation. People wanted to believe that somehow D.B. Cooper had not died in the deep mountains of Washington and was living the high life on the money he'd taken from the man and come to find out they might not be 
wrong. Whoa, what, what? First of all, no one knows exactly where the plane was when Cooper jumped. That's ridiculous. 1971, y'all. No GPS, remember? In 1971, the cutting-edge tech for navigation would have been inertial navigation, which I could explain, but it would take up time, and neither you nor I would actually understand how it fucking worked. So let's just suffice to say it was good for getting where you wanted to go, but not for telling you exactly where you are. On top of that, the plane was being flown fully manual due to the demands of Cooper, meaning the automated logs of the autopilot and other systems would not be controlling the position of the aircraft. Because of this, the suspected search zone was at least 20 miles away from the actual position, and the terrain was much more hospitable for Cooper's survival there. I mean, it's speculation, but I've got more. Going back to Wikipedia quote, On Sunday, February 10th, 1980, eight-year-old Brian Ingram was vacationing with his family on the Columbia River at a beachfront known as Tina Bar, about nine miles downstream from Vancouver, Washington, and about 20 miles from southwest of Ariel, where Cooper was presumed to have originally jumped. He uncovered three packets of the ransom cash as he raked the sandy riverbank to build a campfire. The bills were disintegrated but still bundled in the rubber bands. FBI technicians confirmed that the money was indeed portions of the ransom, two packets of $120 bills each and a third packet of 90 all arranged in the same order as when, when given to Cooper, unquote. The location of the money is downstream from the revised location of the Cooper's jumps, and it fits nicely with that new location. But even more useful is the forensic examination conducted on the money over the years. Hail science! Hail science! Hail science! After the money was discovered, the FBI engaged geologists and other sciencey types to determine when the money might have been deposited on the beach. And from the HBO documentary in 2020, The Mystery of D.B. Cooper, according to their studies at the time, the beach had been dredged in 1974, three years after the hijacking, and the line where that sand deposit from that dredging was clearly demarcated. The money found in 1980 was above the dredge line, meaning it had to have been placed there after 1974. Oh, snap! Furthermore, and this is more interesting, I think, an article published in August of 2020 in Journal Nature contends and seems to confirm that the money had to be buried in the springtime, months after the hijacking took place, based on the presence of algae on the bills that would only be present during the spring of the year, along with many, many other factors that I did not understand because science is hard. The researchers contend, however, that based on the evidence, the geological information, and the breakdown of the money on, over time, that it was most likely buried at the site sometime after the hijacking. He's alive! Well, someone was alive to place the money there. Didn't necessarily mean that D.B. Cooper placed the money there. And hey, you know, science can be wrong. It's possible it just floated down the river and washed up there. But it's not likely. Whether or not D.B. Cooper survived is a question we will address in due time. But let's take a moment to talk about what we know about Dan, or rather, what we think we know. Very, very little. I know we know very, very little, but this is the fun part. So set back and let us together indulge in facts, supposition, and not a little wild speculation. To begin with, the physical evidence. There's very, very little of it to work with. Aside from the famous sketch, almost nothing exists to help identify the guy. Though fingerprints were taken from Cooper's seat, no matches were ever made. And though Cooper smoked like, 
Well, he smoked like someone in 1971 who was hijacking a plane, which is to say a lot, or like me when I'm drinking at a bar on a Friday night. The cigarette butts were recovered from the plane, but you know what? <laughs> they just disappeared. They just disappeared? Yeah, they haven't been seen since the early days of the investigation. They also recovered Cooper's necktie from the plane, which was tested for DNA in 2001. And they found some, but they ran it and found no matches. There were sufficient to rule out some. There was sufficient DNA to rule out some claimants in later years that claimed that they were either Cooper or related to Cooper. And trust me, we'll get there. Nothing has come from that since 2011. And it also seems unlikely modern techniques will ever be applied, including DNA genealogy, unless someone pays for it out of pocket for a book or movie. A few shreds of material have turned up over the years that might be related to Cooper, a belt buckle that could be from his parachute, and a few other odds and ends, but nothing that could conceivably be linked positively to D.B. Cooper. As to his possible identity, at the time, the FBI believed that Cooper was an Air Force veteran or associated with the Air Force and probably from the Seattle area based on his knowledge of the area and specifics about local military installations. They also theorized that Cooper took his alias from a Belgian comic book about a Canadian Royal Air Force test pilot who was <laughs> a test pilot and a rocket ship pilot. You poor, misguided Canadian bastard. <laughs> yeah, Canadian space hero, that's crazy. The theory was that either DB had seen the comic while he was stationed in Europe or that Cooper himself might be Canadian. Canadian? <laughs> but that's just based largely on his use of the phrase negotiable U.S. currency, which is just the sort of thing that a Canadian would say. Everything about Cooper's plan for the hijack suggests that he was highly familiar with the capabilities of that specific aircraft and airplanes in general. Because, hey, there was no Wikipedia in 1971, which I'm going to quote from right now. Quote, he chose a 727-100 aircraft because it was ideal for the bailout escape, owing not only to its aft stare, but also high aftward placements of all three engines, which allowed a reasonably safe jump despite the proximity of the E-engine exhaust. It had a single-point fueling capability. The then-recent information that allowed all tanks to be refueled rapidly through a single fuel port. It also had, highly unusual for commercial jetliner, the ability to remain in slow, low-altitude flight without stalling, and Cooper knew how to control its airspeed and altitude without entering the cockpit, where he could have been overpowered by the three pilots. In addition, Cooper was familiar with important details such as the appropriate flap settings of 15 degrees, which was unique to that specific aircraft, and the typical refueling time. He knew that the aft stair could be lowered during flight, a fact never to disclose to civilian flight crews since there was no situation on a passenger flight that would make it necessary and that its operation by a single switch in the rear of the cabin could not be overridden from the cockpit. Some of this knowledge was virtually unique to CIA paramilitary units. So what, he's in the CIA? He was a spy? He is a spy? Oh, the debates rage on, because Cooper should have known, if he knew all of that, that he couldn't realistically expect to spend any large amount of his ransom money, at least not in the United States. 
Despite demanding non-sequential bills in the ransom, it stands to reason the serial numbers were being recorded, which indeed they were. That's how the money was found, found by the river was identified. He didn't demand some pretty basic equipment that a professional or even moderately trained skydiver would ask for, like a helmet, and chose the oldest and least technically sophisticated parachutes from the first jump to the ground. One of the reserve chutes that he took was actually disabled, which an experienced skydiver would definitely have checked and noticed. And finally, the conditions and location of the jump itself argue strongly against Cooper being a professional. No one could imagine a way for Cooper to know exactly where he was when he jumped. Even the fucking pilot and plane didn't know exactly where they were when he dove out. And an experienced skydiver would have never dove out of a plane wearing street clothes into the pitch dark because it is essentially suicidal. There's no way he could survive. And that has long been the opinion of the FBI and other investigators that Dan Cooper died when he jumped from the plane. This has not, of course, stopped the legend of D.B. Cooper from living on in pop culture. At the time, Cooper was widely hailed as a kind of John Dillinger-esque folk hero. I think he's one of the slickest cats that ever, you know, walked on the face of the earth right now. You think he's sort of a hero? Oh, sure. Well, I just think that uh, any time that a fellow's got this much nerve and is successful this far, that everybody's just kind of rooting for him a little bit. That uh, the man's beat the system, so to speak, a little bit. And I respect a man who takes his time to... Uh, do a job well done. The romantic notion that Cooper survived and went off to live his life without leaving a trace appealed and appeals to this very day. Hell, what I saw in the In Search of, I fell a little bit in love with the idea that D.B. Cooper could be alive and be anyone, and he's persisted in the collective consciousness of America. The small town of Ariel, Washington, where Cooper was originally thought to bail out, still holds D.B. Cooper's days to this very day, the Saturday after Thanksgiving. Cooper's appeared in numerous documentaries and books, of course, but his influence has also cropped up all over the place. There was a popular fan theory that Don Draper from Mad Men would be revealed as D.B. Cooper, which honestly would have been a far better fucking ending than the one we actually got. Twin Peaks, 1990, FBI agent Dale Bartholomew Cooper was a specific reference to old DB. News Radio, a 90s sitcom, which if you don't know, you should definitely watch because it was amazing. Many, and it's where many of a drop about Dave's have been played from this very podcast, had a story arc where station owner Jimmy James was suspected to be DB Cooper, only to have it revealed at the time in the show at trial that Adam West as Adam West, was actually the real D.B. Cooper. But my favorite reference to Cooper is the webcomic XKCD, which posits that D.B. Cooper was, and indeed is, none other than Tommy Wiseau. It's not true. It's bullshit. Who used the ransom money to finance his movie The Room decades later, which is as logical as any other theory about Tommy Wiseau. And of course, DB exists in songs like the ones which we pulled the title from this episode. So, you're probably wondering what the editorial stance of What the Hell Were You Thinking podcast is on whether or not DB Cooper survived his nighttime dive into history? Well, for that, you'll need to tune in next week for Fly the Friendly Skyjackers Part 3. Will the real DB Cooper please stand up? Please stand up. Will we examine the evidence that he did? and render our decision right here on the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. Oh, come on, on, man. What I told you last week, I was milking this for a three-parter. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. <laughs> that is it for our show this week. Fuck, I love this story so much. Next week, we're going to present the whole cast of characters, all of whom either claim to be D.B. Cooper or claim to know who D.B. Cooper was. And honestly, some of them are actually credible, but most of them are fucking nuts. But a few of them, eh, well, you just got to come back and find out. Speaking of stretching out interest for a long period of time only to eventually disappoint you, rate and review this show wherever you get your pods. It helps others find us. Listen for a prolonged period of time, get hooked on us, and ultimately be just just disappointed in the show, just like you were, and just like every woman I've ever dated. All of my disappointing futures are on the social the hell underscore podcast on Twitter and the show name on Facebook. You can keep the disappointment going for a long time by donating to the show at patreon.com slash what the hell podcast. All of the shows are ad-free and early just for a buck. And you could get some disappointing swag for just a few dollars more. All the shows that we've ever done are ready to let you down at whatthehellpodcast.com. And remember, we're a proud member of the Seltzer Kings podcast who we haven't yet let down, but give us time. So for me, Dave, yes, as a matter of fact, my initials are DB. Why do you ask, Bledsoe? Producer, Honestly, someone just arrest him in case he actually is D.B. Cooper Gavin. And all the fictional D.B. wannabes on the show, we want to say we would definitely pay for your drinks if we hijacked your plane. And we'll see you all next week. What the Hell Were You Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow.